we, uh, this week has been a challenging week and especially challenging for the Eastman family as um, Maddie has gone on to be with the Lord and many of you who are part of the prayer chain or the church email know that that has happened and um, it's been some mourning taking place over the last few days and and uh, we're as it's been said, I think on several occasions, we're happy for Maddie and for heaven, and there um, she is all healed and um, full of strength and and vibrant and full of life, and yet we have to deal with the fact that she's not here with us this morning, and I know that that is difficult, and so we... we um, we want to mourn with the Eastman family. We want to sorrow with them as brothers and sisters in Christ and comfort them and help them as much as we can in this journey, in this part of the journey. And um, this passage of Scripture, I hope, will be encouraging to them and encouraging to all of us in regards to um, when somebody passes away, what it looks like in a, from a biblical perspective. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, maybe you're already there. If you are, just if you would stand, we'll, we'll read it together. I would encourage you at some level, I know um, the Eastman's, uh, I don't really know what level of just alone time that they need. I'm thankful that they're here this morning, but I... I would encourage you to just respect their time, but at some point I would also encourage you to ask them to tell you the story um, because it's, it's a very, very powerful uh, depiction of our God and his love and his care and his compassion in difficult times, and I think they would be happy to share that with you at some point, but um, we want to respect their, this time of mourning and and then um, when the Lord opens up the door for there to be more conversation for that to take place. So just, just know this, that um, I think they would appreciate me sharing this, that, that God made, made some things really, really clear in the last minutes for Maddie and for the family that were um, of a supernatural nature, that they could go through that with, with comfort and confidence that God is uh, good and that he is in control. And sometimes these things are questioned and challenged, but, but that's, uh, that's how our God cares. And so um, he's given them that comfort. So let me just read with you, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, Scripture says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are, who are asleep, that you do not grieve as others who have no hope, but since we believe that Jesus, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Christ Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this day, thankful for this church family, the opportunity that you have given us to come together, Lord, and to serve you, to worship you, to celebrate victories together, and to mourn losses. And we come to you, Lord, this morning with a sense of heaviness over Maddie Eastman's passing, but also a sense of trust, a confidence, Lord God, in where she's at, a confidence in her condition now, in her um, being delivered um, maximally, that the deliverance that she's experienced now is incomparable to any other deliverances that are, that are available in this life. And we thank you for that, and we thank you for the comfort and the care that you've already provided through this situation, and we pray that you would continue to provide greater comfort and greater care, and that you would continue to be with us and making your presence and your power known to the family and to all of those who are mourning Maddie's passing. Lord, help this to be a time of faith, a time of trust and dependence, a time of evaluation and even um, to understand how life is and how it comes and it goes. And eternity, Lord God, matters so much. And for us to just take that seriously And we just pray, Lord, as Maddie is with you now, that um, thank you for the care that you have for her and the love that you have for her. And I just pray that you would encourage and comfort our hearts through this difficult time and make us strong in our faith and trusting in you that all that you do is good and right, even when we don't understand. We love you and uh, count it an honor to be a part of your family. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Um, just want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, where, where we, we will continue our study through um, the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 and the doctrine of the resurrection. And it's a, a timely, um, obviously a timely message this morning for uh, all of us as we consider eternity and we think about life after death and what it looks like and what it means and, and how important it is, as the Apostle Paul writes, to really, really affirm in our hearts that there is, there is a resurrection, that uh, this life is not the end, but as the scripture deals with in 1 Corinthians 15, it's really, this life is really like a seed and that, that seed gets planted in the ground at the end of this life and then it springs forth and there is, um, it's so similar to, it's, it's compared in, in this passage to a plant and when you put that seed in the ground, it's, it's, there's, so much, there's so much that's not there and and then when it springs forth, there's so much that is there. 
If you can picture a, a, rose, a, a, a rose bush and, and you plant that in the ground and it's bare and then yet after it, after it grows and produces beautiful, beautiful roses. And, and that's a description of heaven. It's a description of the next life that we look forward to. And, and none of us will ever be able to fathom what Maddie, what, Maddie, what Maddie can fathom this morning, what she sees as being real, that she hoped in, she expected with all of her heart, but yet now it's real to her. And this is stuff that we can't comprehend until we cross that, that line and we see the same thing. And so I think it's a timely, a timely study for us. I'm going to start off with, an, with a story, a, a brief story. I, I, don't, I hope it's not a disrespectful story to where we're at. It, it's kind of a lighthearted story, but I, I think it really paints a picture for us of, of what we're dealing with here in this passage of Scripture. So I, don't, I hope it doesn't come across incorrectly because of the moment that we're in, but I really do want to go ahead and, and use it um, as a, a foundation or a basis for springing off into the text that we're dealing with today, because I, I think it does, it does describe it well. Um, if, you've, if, if you've ever, if any of you are familiar with the, there's a, a series of movies out that um, people tend to like, our, our kids love these movies, it's the Avenger series. Anybody else have watched the Avenger series of movies? Some people have, some, some head shaking, okay, if you've got younger kids, you've probably watched some of the Avenger movies. So if you're familiar at all with any of the Avenger movies, you know that there's a character in these movies known as Doctor Strange. And Doctor Strange's special power or ability is his ability to um, travel through time. And he can open up like portals and he goes through those portals and he's in a different, different uh, time zone, I guess, or whatever you would want to call it. And, and he's also able to control time. So he can control time and he can travel through time. At one point in a, in a recent movie, one of his associates, whose name is Ancient One, that's what they call her in this movie, she is interacting with the Hulk. And most of you know who the Hulk is, if you have any, yeah, we all know who the Hulk is. And so she's interacting with the Hulk, and the Hulk has traveled back through time, and he has come to this ancient one together, this infinity stone. And the purpose of getting the infinity stone is, is to go back into the future and to put all the infinity stones together and to reverse what Thanos, Thanos, or Thanos has done in annihilating half of the universe. So if you're following those movies, you know what that is. And that's not the reason for my story, but we'll get there. So, um, so what the Ancient One does is she has this conversation with the Hulk, and she, she takes, they have, these, they have these powers, if you've watched the movies, and she, she, she throws out this like timeline, this, this universal timeline. And she throws it out there, and, and, and in the timeline that she throws out there, it has all of these like events. And then each one of the events is very significant, very significant, and what she does is, is she goes back, and she's just kind of doing this in a, in a physical way to, to describe to the Hulk what will happen if we change something in the past. So what she does is she goes and she, she removes something out of the past, and, and she shows how that what happens in the future is everything gets distorted and everything gets warped. So she describes to the Hulk the importance of leaving those things, leaving everything in place 
so that things in the future don't get distorted. They don't, they don't get destroyed. And I, and, I, and I share that story with you because this passage of Scripture, what the Apostle Paul does is he throws a timeline out for us. In a very, very similar passion, he throws this timeline out and he shows how that if at any point in time in, in, in life, if we start taking things out, doctrinal things, things of truth from the past, namely the resurrection and the doctrine of the resurrection, if we, if we take that doctrine out, it destroys everything else in the future. Everything is built on in a, in a, from a doctrinal perspective, everything is built on the resurrection of Christ. That's the basis and the foundation for it. But here's what's interesting. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, is that the resurrection of Christ simply started the fulfillment of this timeline. The resurrection of Christ was the beginning point, and you throw out this timeline, and based upon the resurrection of Christ, there are all of these other events that are by necessity of the resurrection guaranteed to happen. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is, if you go back in time and you remove that infinity stone or you remove that resurrection from the picture, you destroy all of those events in the future that are guaranteed to happen based upon the truth of the resurrection. So you can't change the past. You can't alter what has happened and what truths we believe without, in a sense, destroying or annihilating the events that are going to happen into the future. It's so important for us to understand that because a lot of the things that we're doing, even, even not from a theological perspective, but just from a world perspective of rewriting history or changing history to fit in with with some of the philosophies that we have today and ultimately really throwing us off course to where, to where we're going to end up in a place that we don't, we don't ultimately want to be. So the text does this, this for us, just like this timeline, and we're going to look at the timeline this morning and we're going to look at a few truths that come out of this timeline Anything. So the truth that, that we, we see is, is when, you, when you remove something from the past, such as the resurrection, it will have a catastrophic effect on the church and on the future. It will have a catastrophic effect on the church and on the future. So the Apostle Paul, in the last um, several verses that we studied last week, he lays out for us, remember all of the consequences if we take the resurrection out? Remember that? If we take the resurrection out, then Christ hasn't risen from the dead. If we take the resurrection out, then your preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. You are still in your sins. All those who have died and gone into eternity have gone to condemnation and not to heaven. The Apostle Paul lays out a whole bunch of consequences. If you take the resurrection out of the picture and out of the scenario, how it destroys everything into the future. And there's a lot of promises in God's word that we hold to for the future that if the resurrection is not true, those promises have no foundation of fulfillment. If the resurrection is true, then those promises have a great foundation of happening. So he starts this argument in the these, the previous verses, and then in verse 20 through 28, he's going to lay out for us what the timeline is, and he's going to tell us 
how this timeline is guaranteed to, to come to fulfillment, guaranteed to come to fulfillment based upon the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of, of believers. So let's read it together, and we're going to stop, and, and, and I'll make a few comments as we go through. Remember the last phrase of the last um, verse uh, 19 that we studied last week says, if, if, in Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. There's a really strong affirmation here of the if a person commits their life to Christ and it doesn't, there's the, 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 the promises that have been made never come to fruition, then, you're, then, then, our, then our lives are pitiable. If you commit your life to Jesus fully and wholeheartedly, and in the end, you just end up dying and going into the grave, then your whole life was wasted. But he says this, the next verse uses one of the most, one of the strongest words that describes a contradiction to the past, to the last passage of scripture to say, but this, but that is not true, this is true. And what he says is in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has risen from the dead. It's a factual thing that Christ has risen from the dead. While you have all of these things to consider, if he hasn't, that are consequences, he says, in fact, contrary to even considering the fact of these consequences, know this, that Christ Jesus has been risen from the dead. And that's the basis and the foundation for everything else that's in the future. Notice again that the timeline is built upon this one event and everything that goes into the future is guaranteed based upon this one event. If you take this one event out, it distorts everything that has been promised into the future. But if you leave it there, then everything is guaranteed to happen in the future. He goes on to say, The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. For each in his own order. And I want to stop there because this this term here is is significant to the flow of the scriptures. The flow of the passage, the the theme of this passage. portion is this word uh, order. Each one in his own order. In other words, he's going to make an, he's going to place an emphasis on the order of the resurrection. And not just the order of the resurrection, but the order of the eschatological future. The order of future events. He's going to make an emphasis on them because they're all light, they're all tied together. They're all linked. They're all dependent on each other. They're all working together. So this word here is used to describe something that is arranged in an orderly fashion, a series or a succession of things. It's often used in like a military term to describe a, a troop that's, that's set in, in very, very specific order. And that troop stays in that order. It describes a, a band or a class. The term is the describing of a, of a linking of events together or a sequence of events together that are, that are tied together, that are subject to each other and dependent, interdependent on each other. In other words, like a timeline. 
You have a timeline in place. You have events. And when you can look at those events, you can see how they work together. So with this in mind, the Apostle Paul is going to argue for the truthfulness of the resurrection based upon the order of last day events or the order of the eschaton. And we will focus on a few of those things in, our, in this morning's sermon. Let's read on here after this word order here that again defines the whole meaning of the passage. He says, each one in his own order... Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign, speaking of Christ, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted, he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, there's an exception to all things being put under Christ's feet. And the exception is, is that God the Father is not put under Christ's feet. And we know this biblically that Jesus Christ was submissive to the Father. It was his role was a role of submission to the Father. So, so God the Father is never put in submission to God the Son, but, but the other way around. He says, when all things are subject, subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. And this last phrase is super important because what he describes is he describes an Eden-like experience where everything has been restored back to the state like it was in the Garden of Eden when when God the Father is, is everything. God the Father is walking in the garden, fellowshipping with mankind. God the Father is the main uh, focus of our worship. God the Father is the source of righteousness and goodness. And everything in the garden is all about God. It really, until you, you, you really don't have any introduction to anything outside of God's preeminence in Genesis until you get to the, to the, to, to the serpent coming in and, and telling Eve to focus on herself. And otherwise, the focus is completely on God. And God is, God is everything in the Garden of Eden, and God will be everything again in, in, in after all things have been fulfilled. I mean, there's a, there's a timeline that has been laid out for us at the resurrection of Christ that was established, and it has been thrown out there, and it has been thrown out to all eternity to where we have a new heaven and a new earth, and we have all of, all of mankind are living in righteous, holy bodies, righteous, holy people, righteousness is ruling and reigning. All of these things are laid out in this timeline. Everything has been established and ordered in, a, in, a, in, its, in such a way that it's going to be fulfilled according to God's order and God's plan. But here was, here's what you have to get about this orderly structure that's been laid out for us is, is we all have this hope, right? We all look forward to this, to this future resurrection. We all look forward to the... Um, to the 
the eschaton, the last things, the new heaven and the new earth, the, the earth without any sickness or sin or any of those things. We all look forward to that, but this is what's important is you have to understand that those things are fitted into a timeline that if at any point you take one piece of that timeline away, you distort the rest of the timeline. What the Apostle Paul is arguing here is that this all fits together. It all works together. Every piece of it works together in perfect harmony, bringing about the next event. And bringing about the next event and bringing about the next event. And there's great comfort to be had in the Christian life as we look at this timeline of of the Lord's events for the last days. So the first thing, if you're, if you're taking notes, I want to look at three things this morning and unfold them for you with hopefully some practical truths to, to go away with. The first thing is simply the order of God's eschatological timeline or the timeline of the last days. This is his order. He lays it out for us here. It's fairly simple. Number one is Jesus Christ is the beginning of the timeline. He, he sets it into place. The resurrection of Christ sets the timeline for the end times into place. It, it kind of it launches, if you will, the timeline. Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ, launches all of these things that as you throw that timeline out there, like we saw in the illustration at the beginning, if you throw that timeline out there, the beginning of it would be the resurrection of Christ. And everything else along the way is subject to the event prior. So again, at any point in time, what Paul is arguing is if you take the resurrection of Christ out of the picture, then the rest of the timeline is warped. It's like, okay, here's the timeline here. So if I, if I take this piece out, then the timeline goes over that way. Or if I take this piece out, the timeline goes over this way. The, the timeline is not the same if you start removing pieces from it. So his argument is all of these things work together in harmony, and they're all dependent on the previous, so you can't remove one and expect the rest to happen. We all love to talk about heaven, Right? And we look forward to it, and we're excited about it, and we're excited about a new heaven and a new earth, and we're excited about new things, a a body that is without any sickness or pain or suffering. We look forward to those things, but but here's what you've got to understand from this text of Scripture. Those things are dependent on the resurrection of Christ. That's what starts the flow, and everything else flows from that. Jesus Christ is the start is the starting, Jesus Christ's resurrection, is the starting of this timeline. Okay, he's called in this passage of Scripture the first fruits. The first fruits comes from the book of Leviticus and the 23rd chapter. If you want to familiarize yourself back in the, in the Old Testament times, the, the uh, farmers would, would go out and they would sow a field and they would, they would then harvest a portion of that field. Maybe we would call it a tithe of that field. And they would take that tithe of that field and they would bring it into the priest and it was called the first fruits offering. And the first fruits offering was then offered to the priest as a, as a representation of the rest of the harvest. In, in other words, everything that came after that was subject to that first fruits offering. When it was brought in, 
the rest of the harvest was judged by the first fruits, meaning like when you brought it in, everything else beyond that was expected to fit in to what that first fruits looked like. It was the standard, if you will, if you wanted to put the word standardizing, the first fruits were standardized, the, the, the harvest was standardized by that first fruit. And Jesus is called the first fruits here because everything is standardized by Jesus. Matter of fact, no one gets into heaven without being just like Jesus. And we don't become just like Jesus on our own merits. We come just like Jesus by we become just like Jesus by trusting in him, by placing our faith in him. That is what salvation is. Is trusting in Jesus that his righteousness becomes our righteousness and our sins were placed on his shoulders. They became his. That's what the gospel is. And Jesus is the first fruits. He is the, the standard for all of the rest of the harvest. The other thing that uh, a first fruits was is that it was a guarantee that there would be more harvest, that there was more to come. Whenever the harvest, the first fruits were brought in, it was saying that the harvest is good or the harvest is bad. What Jesus is saying by bringing the first fruits brought in is he's saying that there's going to be more harvest. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the resurrection of all who believe. That there's more harvest coming. There's a greater harvest coming. There's a, a bigger harvest coming. And that is, that is based upon the guarantee that the first fruits presents. And Jesus is the first fruits. And Jesus is successful. And Jesus is fruitful. Based upon him... There's many fruits after him. It's interesting, when you read through the book of 1 Corinthians 15, the, um, whenever it talks about the resurrection of Jesus, it talks about it in a perfect tense. And the perfect tense in the Greek describes something that has happened in the past, but continues to bear fruit in the future. It continues to produce fruit. And Jesus is the only one in 1 Corinthians 15 whose resurrection is spoken of in the perfect tense. Because his resurrection is the only one that creates other resurrections. His resurrection is the only one that causes there to be more resurrections. So he is the first fruit, guaranteeing, standardizing the harvest, guaranteeing the harvest, and creating an expectation for the harvest. In other words, what is the harvest going to look like? What was Jesus Christ identified? What, what was it about Jesus that was identified as him being the first fruits? It was his resurrection, right? So what will be expected by everyone else who comes after him with the harvest? What will mark them? What will identify them? The resurrection. The same thing that identified Christ as the first fruits is what will be looked for in believers as the following harvest. This is why, folks, it is important that you must be born again. Because being born again is being, is, is being resurrected spiritually. If a person hasn't been born again, they can't connect themselves to the first fruits who was identified by his, by his resurrection. We will be identified as well as the continued harvest by our resurrection twofold. Resurrecting spiritually at salvation, resurrecting physically at the return of Christ. 
First fruits identified by the resurrection, the rest of the harvest is expected to be identified by the resurrection. Notice this, believers are referred to as being asleep. This is another interesting term that's used in this text. It's throughout this chapter and in many other places in the New Testament, believers and only believers are referred to as being asleep when they die. They're referred to as being asleep when they die. We read it this morning in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, I do, not want you to be cons- I do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. They are asleep. There's nothing final to that. There's no finality to sleeping. When somebody goes to sleep, what do you expect? They're going to wake up. That's what we expect, right? There's no finality to it at all for a Christian. That's why he refers to them as being asleep. Maddie's asleep, you guys. And she's not even asleep anymore. She woke up already in the the Lord's presence. But it refers to that because that's what it is. Listen to me, folks. I tell you this. If you can look at it from the time, if you can see the whole timeline, you will understand what sleep looks like. Because the timeline includes physical death. But then the next part of the timeline is another event in a person's life. It's like, well, if that's physical death, that should be the end of the timeline, right? Right? No. For a Christian, that timeline flows way beyond that physical death. The problem that we have in this modern world is we can't see the rest of the timeline. So we end it there. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is if you can see this whole timeline all the way to the eschaton where God has rebuilt the earth and the heaven and everything is new and man is not what they were before but they're different. If you can see the whole timeline, you will understand this. When Christians die, they're asleep. The hardest thing, folks, for us as as believers is to to allow ourselves to see the whole picture. When you receive Jesus as your Savior, it becomes an eternal picture. It goes way past your physical death. Matter of fact, that James refers to your physical, and I think Michael referred to this in one of his things he put out there. James refers to your physical life as a vapor. Appears for a short time and then it's it's gone. But if you can see the whole timeline, if you can look at the whole timeline. Your life is going to be like this much of it because eternity is going to be forever. That's why it refers to believers as sleeping. They're just asleep. And, and then they wake up in there and they wake up in heaven. They wake up in heaven. We had a, a young we had a young lady this last year that lost a baby um, in the womb. She had, she, she, she had a, a stillborn baby in a very precious family and, and um, part of the church here, and I was able to do the ceremony, but my, my challenge to them was is that baby was birthed into heaven. She was, that baby was born in heaven. Didn't know what death was, and it's in that little baby's mind, didn't experience death, didn't have anything, didn't have any knowledge of death just was born in the presence of God. And you, when you die, you go to sleep and you wake up and you're in a better place. 
an amazing place. And you might think to yourself, how did I get here? <laughs> Maybe for about one, one, one thousandth of a second you'd think that and you'd be so overwhelmed with where you're at that you just glorify the one who brought you there. It's so important, folks, that we see the fullness of the timeline. It's so long and so much bigger than the limited view that we have of it from this life. And if we can see it from that perspective, we can see that it's just, it's just a falling asleep. If you're a Christian, you're going to die. And if you're lost, you're going to die too. The difference will be as a Christian, when you die, it'll be asleep. It'll be a, you're going to sleep and you're waking up in God's presence. For a lost person, it's condemnation. And that's why we encourage people to come to faith in Christ. Because that's the hope that we have. Our hope is really not that this life is going to be great. Our hope is that the next life is going to be great. That's what we look forward to. So the first one is resurrection of Jesus starts the timeline. Secondly, the resurrection of believers continues the timeline. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of believers. The resurrection of Christ. He, he uses, and I'm not going to go back to the text here, but you can look at it. He uses, the, he compares Adam to Christ. And he says, anybody who was born into Adam is going to die. And we'd all say amen to that, right? Every human being, um, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Every human being is going to die, and no one argues that. But here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the switch. At the same confidence that we have everybody who is alive will die, we have the same confidence that everybody who is in Christ will rise again. That's the connection that he's making here. He wants us to have that same confidence because of Christ's resurrection we can be assured that we will also resurrect. This comparison that we have in the text to um, Adam and Christ is something that we see also in Romans 5. We see it in the form of representation, that Adam represents all of those who are human, and they all die because of Adam's sin that was passed on. The resurrection is, is Christ representing us, and we resurrect based upon the, the, based upon the works of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. It's a representation. When will, when will the believers resurrect? The text says at his coming. And this, is a, um, this is a Greek word, parousia, which is known by many as the word to describe the appearance or the arrival of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord. When will, the, when will God's people come out of the grave? Well, there's three events that will happen. Number one is the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4 when the rapture takes place, the graves will open up, the Bible says, and bodies will be reunited with souls. And I tell you, they're not going to be the same bodies, they're not going to be the same type of bodies, but there's going to be a restoring, or uh, there's, there's really not a good word, but refurbishing, uh, uh, transformation, changing of the body to be prepared for eternal things. At the rapture, that's going to happen. At the second coming, Revelation 20 and verse 4, there'll be another resurrection of those who believe, those who have gone through the tribulation period but yet have not received their glorified body yet. Or those who died during the tribulation period, they will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period before the kingdom is, is set into place. And then there's a final resurrection in Revelation 20 and verse 5 it talks about. That's the resurrection of the lost who will resurrect and stand before God on judgment day, and they will be judged according to their works. 
So the resurrection of Christ starts the timeline. The resurrection of believers continues the timeline. Listen, the resurrection of Christ is necessary for the resurrection of believers. Amen? Now get this. The last part of the timeline that the Lord presents is the restoration of all things complete, completes the timeline. The restoration of all things completes the eschatological timeline. So, that being said, if the resurrection of believers is guaranteed based upon the resurrection of Christ, the the restoration of all things is subject to the resurrection of who? Believers. In other words, if we take the resurrection of believers out of the picture, we don't have the restoration. We don't have the completion. We don't have the... The reason for this timeline is to present to us something that is necessarily together. The restoration of everything. He says, then the end will come. This means conclusion or goal. Then we will reach the goal. We will have the results that we've expected. We will finally reach the end of our journey. This is the last thing in the timeline. All things are being subjugated to Christ now. And in the end, they will be finally subjugated to Christ. They will then be presented to the Father. And the Lord will be, the Christ will be put, will, will rejoin the Father in, in ruling in a divine, heavenly, spiritual way. The, everything will be put under the Father's uh, um, guidance and leadership and authority. And everything will be restored back to where it was before. And where we're at right now is we're in that process of the Lord putting everything under his feet. And he's doing that with believers. And one day in the, at the end of the tribulation, he'll do that with everybody. There will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of God the Father. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. That is taking place today with believers. When you get saved, you bow your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what you do. That's what salvation is. In the end, at the end of the tribulation, the Lord will force through physical restraint for his enemies to bow their knee to to him against their will but everybody will bow their knee to God. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11 for your future for your future reading. The final goal will happen, but it is subject to the previous step in the, in the timeline, which is the, rest, the resurrection of believers, which is subject to the previous step in the timeline, which is the resurrection of Christ. But they all guarantee each other. If Christ rose from the dead, then believers will rise from the dead. If believers rise from the dead, then God will restore everything to himself. That's what this is all about. Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. Let me give you a few observations. That was the order of the, the order of the, uh, events that are happening right now and that will happen into the future. They're all 
they're all packaged in one timeline, must stay together. Let me give you a few observations. Number one is God's timeline is unchanging. God's timeline is unchanging. It is set in stone. God ordained it to happen. It is a decreed timeline. It's not a timeline that's based upon knowledge. It's a timeline that's based upon design. God didn't say, I look into the future and see this timeline playing out. God said, I control the future, and I say this timeline is going to work itself out. This is a decree from God. When we see this timeline playing out, the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of believers, and then finally the restoration, none of that stuff is subject to chance. It's not a subjective thought that the Lord is throwing out that maybe this stuff will work out in the end and maybe it won't. It is a decree that God is saying this is what is going to happen. God's timeline is unchanging. It is based upon his decree and his sovereignty. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, the Lord declares the end. He decrees the end before it ever gets close to the end. That is his sovereignty. That is his design. That is his glory. He says, my counsel shall stand I will accomplish all of my purposes, calling the bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. This is where our confidence comes from. We see this timeline. We trust that God is capable of keeping it in place, and then we watch it unfold. God's timeline is unchangeable, number one. God's timeline is unstoppable. There are many, the Bible, is, the Bible is replete. If you read the book of Revelation, you will find many who have tried with all of their might to destroy God's timeline. You go back into the first, uh, the first century of time, the serpent in the garden sought to destroy God's plan by tempting Eve. The angels tried to destroy God's biological plan by by intermarrying with women of the earth. Saul tried to destroy David to kill the line of Christ. Herod tried to kill Jesus to destroy Christ himself. Revelation is a book that's full of individuals who tried to stop the timeline of God. And may I submit to you that every single one of them has failed and every single one of them will fail because God's decreed timeline will come to pass. It's unstoppable. It's unbreakable. What he has put into place will come to pass. I think of passages of scripture like Psalm 139 where it says that our, our very days are numbered. Our, our, our God has written all of our days into a book. And yet we think that we can change that and alter it. And there's one time in the Bible where God does allow there to be a, a king praise. God, lengthen my days. And God lengthens his days, and, and it's not great. He has a great life up until the lengthening of days, and the lengthening of days isn't the greatest part of his life. God's timeline is set, and he has a reason for it. He has a purpose for it, and it's always good. 
It's always good, and you're not going to change it, and you're not going to alter it. And all that the world does, listen, all that the world does from the, first, from, the, from, the, from the third chapter of the Bible to try to distort God's timeline to Revelation 22 where they're still trying to distort God's timeline, it's not going to happen. God's timeline is undefeatable. Number four, number three, God's timeline is as good as finished. In other words, it's written in such a way as it is it is going to be complete. The Bible tells us the promise in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in me or in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus and God are going to accomplish their work. God's work of creating a perfect world one day will be restored to that state, and God will finish the work that he started. Jesus' work of redeeming a people for himself, will be, will, it will come to fruition with the resurrection of those whom he has redeemed. These are not questionable statements. They're decreative statements. They're absolute statements. God's timeline is as good as finished. And then the last thought on this on this one, which is the observation from the text, is God's timeline is marked by motion. I just want you to, to think about that each step in the timeline identifies the, it identifies the fact that we're in a process. It identifies that we're, in a, we're on a journey. We're on the timeline. We trust in the resurrection of Christ. It begins the timeline, but then comes the resurrection of believers at salvation. Then comes the resurrection of believers at the resurrection. You have justification marking sanctification, sanctification marking glorification. All of these events are running together, and as you see the motion in your life, you know that God is actively working in your life, and you know that the next step in the process is guaranteed. How many of you guys know that you're promised that one day you'll be perfect in the Bible? You know that? How many of you know that you're not perfect today? How many of you know that the promise is going to be fulfilled because you see the journey taking place in your life? It's marked by the motion of the journey. It's marked by seeing the steps taking place. And I'll get to some application on that here in a moment. We need to see that stuff taking place. The last thought is operating. The third thought, the third main thought is operating in God's timeline. And there's just three things I want you to think about when you think about operating in God's timeline. Number one is it's built on faith. We operate in God's timeline when we trust that he has a timeline. When we see the timeline, we look at it and we trust it. We believe it. We trust it. We trust that he's sovereign. We trust that he's in control. We trust that he's powerful. We trust that he's good. And we look at the whole big picture and not just the little portion of it. We trust the timeline. We trust the process. And we trust the person. It is all built around faith. The Bible tells us that our, our hope comes from faith. It comes believing in God and trusting in him. Number two, identif- we, I- we need to identify marks in our, in our life that mark us as a part of God's timeline. Bear fruits. If you're not bearing fruits that mark you in that timeline, then you need to, to do an evaluation. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then the, then the, the timeline, you, you've, taken, you've taken out of the timeline something very, very important, which is faith. And therefore, your journey goes that direction or that direction. Mark some things in your life that are fruits so that you can see yourself on the journey with the Lord. The Bible says in Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace. And it goes through a whole list of different things that mark us as followers of Jesus. Is it important to know that you're a part of his family? Will there be people who will stand before God one day thinking that they were part of his family and not, and not be welcomed into heaven? Will there be? You need to see fruits marking you. Submission to God's timeline, trusting his timeline, depending upon it, leaning on him in the process, and then lastly, living, expecting God to finish his timeline. I wrote this down, and I think it's important. From 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared to us, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's the promise, right? One day you will be just like Christ and you will see him as he is. You will know him fully because you will be known by him fully and you will be in his image. That's the promise, right? Listen to what he says next. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. In other words, when you have God's promises, you should live in such a way that expresses that you believe God's promises. You're moving, you're moving down that timeline. You're trusting him in that timeline. You're moving through that process, and you're expecting the next step to happen, so you're acting upon it. A good example of this is, is, um, is, is um, Abraham. Every day, Abraham got up and walked to a place that he didn't know where he was going. How many of you believe that Abraham believed God was going to take him to a promised land? Why do you think you believe that so strongly? If Abraham would have woken up every morning and said, you know what, I'm just going to sleep in today. And when God tells me where I'm going, then I'll, I'll put my shoes on. We wouldn't believe that Abraham believed God, would we? Why we believe in Abraham's faith is because he woke up in the morning, he put his shoes on, and he started walking somewhere that he didn't know where he was going. God has made a promise to you and to me that one day we will be perfect. Does anybody know what that looks like? No, do we? We have no idea what that looks like. But what we do know is that it's true. And we can trust him. And as we trust him, we can move in the direction of that fulfillment. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are going to complete the things that you started and that we can trust that, that the timeline is not um, in question. Maybe where we fit into it and where we, whether we trust in it, maybe that is, but the timeline itself is not. And I pray that you would plant within each one of us a, a level of faith that embraces the fact that you have everything worked out. There's nothing to be concerned about, to be worried about, to be fearful of. Because you, O oh Lord, are in control. Please uh, grant us the faith to embrace that, to experience your deliverance and your salvation for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.